Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Washington all always has some effect on Wall Street, but perhaps never more than when, as this week, Washington promises but cannot quite deliver a big stimulus package. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We talked about the consequences for the C-suite with Eric Cantor, someone who's dealt with it both from Washington and from Wall Street, first as House Majority Leader and now as Vice Chairman of Molis & Company. You know, I think what we're seeing at Molis & Company is, is, is actually a pent-up demand uh, for quality assets. And if you've got a quality, quality asset, there, there is um, a lot of interest on the part of our corporate clients, our private equity clients. Uh, and, and in many cases, um, you know, those kind of assets are attracting so much attention uh, that uh, some of the potential buyers are looking to pay even pre-COVID prices uh, for, for those kind of assets. And when you're talking about assets, you're talking about COVID resistance at resistant assets. So obviously assets in the healthcare space, the technology space, the business services space. This is where we're seeing now increasing momentum uh, coming forth and a lot more robust dialogue than we had maybe a month or six weeks ago. How is the very loose monetary policy, if I can characterize that, how is that affecting prices? Well, I think there's, there's no question that having uh, the loose monetary policy, it, the consequence of that is clearly in uh, lower interest rates. So the cost of borrowing is going to be lower. Uh, access to capital continues 
uh, to be good. Even the credit markets, uh, when they were, um, you know, ailing in the beginning of this, the Fed stepped in and announced it'll be the backstop. So uh, for the most part, I think you've got a much more healthy uh, kind of environment in terms of access to capital than people originally would have thought uh, when we entered this pandemic. Does that drive a, a CEO, in fact, to have a little bit of an itchy trigger figure because they, he can get access to an awful lot of capital or she can? Well, I mean, I think it depends on the kind of uh, CEO and where uh, where the company sits. If it's a large cap uh, company, obviously, we've seen the latest figures and there's been an uptick on the over $10 billion uh, announcements in terms of uh, M&A deals. Uh, but you also have uh, the private sponsors end. And as we know, there's been a proliferation of private sponsors over the last decade. And you're now at a point where there's like 9,000 private equity firms out there. And I would say maybe 500,000 or which or several billion dollars a piece um, of interest to a firm like Molis. Uh, and those firms, if you if you think, I mean, those private equity c- firms, uh, they're built to do deals. I mean, they raise money. Their investors are expecting them to allocate and invest capital. Uh, and so those are the kind of things that um, these are the elements that were in place pre-pandemic, exist during and will exist after. So it's that dynamic that is continuing to push, I think, some of this dialogue along. In order to make an investment make sense, you need to be confident there's going to be demand for the product or service coming up. And that takes us back to the economy, an economy that continues to limp along. It's made some progress back, but I think it's fair to say it's, it's a long way from out of the woods. What do you make of this fight over stimulus right now in Washington? You spent so much time there. You understand these players. It is a, it is a given that we're not going to see a full return to our economic normalcy until a vaccine arrives. Uh, So in the meantime, uh, I think it is incumbent upon uh, the government to address the needs that arise for those uh, who are out of work. I mean, that's first and foremost. And that's why you're seeing a lot of the skirmish take place uh, around the unemployment insurance number. How much is it going to be? Um, I just think we're going to see a prolonged period of time where these what we call automatic Uh, stabilizers like unemployment insurance are going to be in place and are going to be elevated for quite some time. And, and, you know, eventually there will be, in my opinion, a deal done in Washington uh, around a relief package. I think it'll be a lot more targeted than perhaps the CARES Act was. Companies on the whole that will be beneficiaries of the continued support will be companies who have suffered disproportionately under the pandemic. It won't be just all companies. Uh, I also think that um, you can't do without some assistance to state and local governments. Uh, Number one, they're a large employer in our economy. And I don't think anybody wants to see this massive number of people um, just dumped onto the unemployment rolls. And that's going that dislocation is going to have to be managed. And then lastly, um, it's about school openings. We're not going to see um, a return to economic strength unless we see the school opens, the school openings. And that's where the localities, the states are going to need some help, some guidance, some resources to allow that to happen. President Trump came out and said that he was at least seriously considering, as he put it, uh, unilaterally imposing some sort of relief on capital gains tax. Now, we've heard that, particularly from Republicans through the years. He says it will create a lot more jobs. 
Does that hold true today, particularly when the interest rates are so low? Well, I mean, I, I think, first of all, um, you know, cap gains uh, and taxation has to do with valuations, too. And with the elevated nature of valuations right now, there are a lot of gains to be had. Uh, and if an investor believes that uh, he or she uh, can benefit from a lower capital gains rates uh, going forward, I think it does prompt more interest in putting capital at risk. I've always been a believer in our risk-based system of investment in this country. We're the best there is in the world. Uh, so I do think it would be additive. Now, the question's always been in Washington about the president or any executive's authority to actually affect the, um, uh, uh, the rate. And I think, I believe the way, and we haven't seen a lot of details on this, but I believe the way that the White House or President Trump would go about this would be to provide or impose an indexing on the capital gains rates, uh, which would then, again, um, uh, allow for an investor to avoid the inflation of, of impact um, of an increase in valuation. That was Eric Cantor of Molis and Company. Coming up, President Trump has been dismantling much of U.S. foreign policy crafted over 70 years. We talk with Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations about what this could mean for the health of the U.S. economy. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The United States flourished under a post-World War II regime built on multinational institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. But President Trump has gone in a very different direction, something addressed by Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas in his new piece for foreign affairs, Present at the Disruption. The president is trying to undo a lot of his inheritance and almost like health care, repeal without replace. So the president has said repeatedly on the campaign trail and then as, as president, we've been taken advantage of. The United States has been taken advantage of. Other people are benefiting. We're paying all the bills. What has this international system created after World War II actually done for the prosperity of America? He does think that. When I met with him when he was still a candidate, he believed that, that fervently, that trade agreements have ripped us off and that essentially the costs of foreign policy, our stationing of troops overseas and the like, far outweighs any benefits. What he seems to be missing here, David, is that for 75 years, there's not been a great power conflict. To, to the extent there was a conflict, the Cold War, one, it stayed cold, and two, it ended on terms that were extraordinarily favorable to us. Meanwhile, standards of living in this country have gone up dramatically, one by, by some measures 90-fold since the end of World War II. The average American lives on the order of 10 years longer than he or she uh, lived 75 uh, years ago. Democracy is far more prevalent around the world. So I'm hard pressed as someone who's trained as a historian to find any other period of history as productive and constructive as the last 75 years. I'm not going to sit here and say we didn't make mistakes. Of course we did in Vietnam, Iraq, and so forth. But by and large, on balance, this has been a remarkable run. Richard, even when uh, Donald Trump came to office, things were changing. I mean, China was growing very quickly. It was growing to challenge us as the world's dominant economic power. Uh, was it inevitable that we had to do something other than what was left over after World War II? Oh, absolutely, for several reasons. One, you point to uh, China has emerged in many ways, and we needed to adjust our policy. And I think the president deserves some credit for calling out China, where I, where I think he gets the, the blame, is I don't see anything coherent or consistent for, for dealing with China. 
probably an, an even greater problem with American foreign policy is a lot of the institutions that you referred to are getting long in the tooth. We've got a whole new set of challenges in the world, things like how to regulate cyberspace, what to do about climate change, what to do about proliferation. And we simply don't have the mechanisms in place in the world. There's a real shortfall when it comes to international arrangements. So addressing that has got to be on our agenda. Unfortunately, the president is essentially uninterested or even opposed to international agreements of those sorts. You mentioned China, obviously a terribly important relationship for the United States economically as well as geopolitically. Uh, where are we headed right now with China if we keep going the direction we are? The president clearly believes that if he keeps putting enough pressure on China, he will do something good for the United States and good for U.S. workers. I can see two things happening if we keep going. In the short run, uh, I'm actually quite worried about a military incident say, between American and Chinese aircraft or ships in something like the South China Sea, the Taiwan Straits, near islands also claimed by Japan and the Pacific. And the real challenge then will, will be to try to put a lid on it so an incident doesn't, doesn't grow into a, a conflict. In the longer run, David, I'm actually concerned about a U.S.-Chinese Cold War, uh, an across-the-board uh, competition that at times is, uh, has us lined up against one another. It's dangerous. It's costly, but also it would probably rule out U.S.-Chinese cooperation, say, in dealing with the North Korea or dealing with global health or dealing with climate change. And I think we're pretty far down that road. So one of the focal points of our relationship with China, certainly under President Trump, has been trade. But the trade issues facing the United States are not limited to China. They go much more broadly, including the very institution of the WTO and our relations with Europe, with a lot of our allies. Uh, what is happening because of, to our economy because of what has happened with trade under President Trump? Yeah, we've lost a real chance, I think, to grow global trade and also to improve the way it's regulated. If we'd stayed in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that would have teamed us up with countries altogether. We would have represented over 40% of the world's GDP. We then could have put tremendous pressure on China to raise its game, to meet our uh, standards. Well, we could reform the World Trade Organization. It's clearly flawed. But then the question is, how do you make it, how do you make it better? Instead, what we're essentially doing is undermining it by not approving any judges for the one part of the World Trade Organization that's actually worked quite well and often in our interest, which is its adjudication panel for, for resolving trade disputes. As you know so well, Richard, we've got an election in this country coming up November 3rd and including for the president of the United States. Exactly. There's a rumor to that effect. Uh, but, but as you look at that possible fork in the road, how do you look at a Biden, now we know, Harris administration with respect to foreign policy as opposed to Trump-Pence? Well, I think the, the differences would be uh, much more willingness to work with allies. I think that would probably be sort of the foundation. They deal with allies and then approach all these regional and, and global challenges. I think you'd probably see reentry into various international arrangements and institutions. The problem for uh, a Biden-Harris uh, administration or the challenge would be their inheritance would be rough. It'd be a really daunting uh, inbox. Four years ago, David, you'll recall I wrote a book called The World in Disarray. Well, now it's disarray on uh, on steroids. So I think they would they would face that all the time. Think about it. The next president and vice president are going to have to still deal with the pandemic here at home. Tens of millions unemployed, a country divided by politics and race, possibly by the election uh, itself. So that you're, they're going to have a situation where there'll be greater demand than ever for American leadership and involvement in the world. At the same time, the home front will be calling out for for repair. 
So, Richard, you deal with these world leaders on a regular basis. Is there a pent-up demand for an alternative to President Trump? I'm reminded of the fact that at the end of George W. Bush's administration, it was thought that our reputation, some people thought, was not very good in the world. And then President Obama came in. Certainly the Obama administration think they turned it around pretty quickly. Is that realistic? Well, I think the greatest demand for change and something like a return to what people thought they knew for the familiar is with our allies. They treasure American reliability and predictability. Consultations are important. So in Europe and Asia is where you find the, the greatest demand for something familiar. But I would think in countries like Turkey or, or Russia, they're pretty happy with what they've got. Countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia were very uncomfortable with the, with the o Obama administration. China can't quite make up its mind. On one hand, the United States has created geopolitical vacuums that China's happy to fill. On the other hand, they find it really hard to, to figure out an America that's so wildly inconsistent. That was Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the best-selling book, The World, A Brief Introduction. Coming up, reviving New York by creating 100,000 new jobs for those who need it most. Explained by the co-chair of the new New York Jobs CEO Council, Julie Sweet, CEO of Accenture. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Unemployment in urban areas has been hit hard by the pandemic, but especially for those in minority communities, something specifically addressed by a new initiative announced this week by 27 CEOs, the New York Jobs CEO Council which is committed to creating 100,000 new, well-paying jobs and making sure those in underserved communities have the skills to fill them. We talked about the program with one of the co-chairs, Accenture CEO Julie Sweet. David, the council brings together today 28 companies, 28 CEOs, who are going to work collaboratively to create 100,000 jobs at our companies by 2030, for low-income and underserved New Yorkers. Uh, there was a need for this before the pandemic. How does the pandemic affect that need now? Um, as you said, before the pandemic, we'd actually come together, and this, this council has been uh, in formation for some time. The pandemic, of course, has put even more pressure on underserved New Yorkers. And also, very importantly, it's changing the whole jobs picture. You hear about things like digital transformation. 
you're going to have more automation. There's going to be pressure on jobs uh, and that many underserved New Yorkers might access today. And so it's even more important that we help uh, this, these communities get to stable, well-paying jobs. And what's so unique about you know, this effort is it's both CEO-led, but you have some of the most important industries for the future, like healthcare, financial services, and technology, well represented, which is critical for those kinds of jobs that we need to create. Uh, we've seen a lot, talked a lot about the growing wealth and income inequality in the country. And many people say that goes back to the question of education and skills. There's a difference sometimes between education and skills, because we tend to think of four-year liberal arts college. What are you going to be doing to prepare these young men and women? Well, first of all, it's, it's, it is important to distinguish between skills and education, because one of the things that we found at Accenture, for example, is that many things that we used to require a four-year degree, uh, we now have apprentices with two years degree who are very successfully doing that and then moving on to better jobs. We have 700 apprentices at Accenture currently. And so focusing on what are the demands of the job and what are the skills are critical to opening up more opportunities at companies like those represented on the New York uh, CEO Council. But separately from that, what the council's also doing is uh, working together to make sure that we also serve the particular needs of these communities. Many of the uh, individuals that we'll be serving don't come from families where they've had other people who work in the types of companies represented here. And so we're also partnering with not-for-profit organizations in addition to educational institutions like CUNY to make sure that these individuals have the soft skills and the support they need to succeed at, at these types of companies. 100,000 people you're looking at uh, over the next 10 years. How are you going to find them or how will they find you, these young men and women? Well, our first step in finding these 100,000 people is to partner with CUNY, and we're really excited because the chancellor has been such a terrific partner, and really the entire uh, CUNY community is uh, really focused on helping make this successful. So the first 25,000 will be sourced, you know, through our relationship with CUNY. How uh, early will you start working with them? I mean, are we talking about high school level? Are we talking college level? At what point will you start really intervening and helping them develop these skills? Uh, the, uh, the, we're we're going to be going deeper into details, uh, and some of it's going to depend on the needs as we continue to work with uh, CUNY. But we do expect to have both high school, uh, a focus on high school, as well as for the CUNY jobs are obviously uh, starting uh, in their, in their um, post-high school education. And City University of New York, of course, had a, a long tradition of dealing with often first-generation Americans and often underserved, as you say, minority communities in, in New York. So they have some experience in this regard. Absolutely. I mean, this is a long tradition for CUNY, as, as you suggest. Uh, but what's really different here is the tight connection between the education that CUNY is providing, the, the need in the market, right, and the industries of both today and tomorrow. And it's that combination that is really critical. And because this is CEO-led, you know, the intention is to have these uh, jobs and opportunities be part of our company's talent strategy, which is very different. This isn't a corporate citizenship 
uh, activity. This is about embedding into our HR departments and our talent strategies, tapping into a really tremendous source of talent. That was Julie Sweet, CEO of Accenture. Coming up, we talk with contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next. This is Wall Street Week. Off to the races. California Senator Kamala Harris joins Team Biden. And the S&P 500 falls short of a new record as economic data show an uneven recovery. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm Scarlett Fu, in for David Weston. Mixed messages on the economy. Jobless claims dipping below 1 million for the first time since March. Retail sales gain, but the pace is slowing down. Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren says a continued recovery depends on more economic aid. My personal assumption and my forecast is that some form of additional stimulus is going to occur. Um, it would definitely be bad news both for my forecast and for the economy if we don't do any additional stimulus at this time. Stocks rise, but the S&P 500 can't cross the finish line on a new high. The real action, though, was the sell-off in Treasuries, which sent yields climbing. Investors also have a clearer picture of America's choice in November. Kamala Harris joins Joe Biden as his running mate. Her relatively moderate stances give Wall Street some relief. Kamala, as you all know, is smart. She's tough. She's experienced. She's a proven fighter for the backbone of this country, the middle class, for all those who are struggling to get into the middle class. Kamala knows how to govern. She knows how to make the hard calls. She's ready to do this job on day one. Joining us now is Wall Street Week special contributor and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. He is also an advisor to presidential candidate Joe Biden. Larry, I want to start with Biden's pick of Kamala Harris as his vice president. The Democratic National Convention, we know, starts next week, and Senator Harris will give her acceptance speech. What does her addition mean for the Biden agenda, especially when it comes to his economic plans? Let me just uh, say, Scarlett, I'm one of many, many people who has spoken with uh, the vice president about economic policy, but I'm in no sense part of his campaign. Uh, as an advisor, and certainly I speak uh, only for myself. I think Senator Harris is someone who has had uh, good relationships with a wide range of people in the economy, with uh, workers and representatives of workers, with uh, corporate uh, leaders, with consumer groups, with other stakeholders. Uh, in uh, the economy, and I think she's widely respected. I think that she and Senator Biden are determined to govern in a very different way than the economy has been governed for the last four years. It's a way that will build on uh, the middle class. It's a way that will be positive about uh, the role of government in protecting people and redressing inequality and making uh, necessary uh, public investments. And it's a way that isn't about pitting one group against another group, but that recognizes that uh, we all uh, rise and fall together uh, with uh, the economy. And it's a very interesting 
fact, and I think one that should get more attention than it sometimes uh, does, Scarlett, that when we've had democratic administrations historically, corporate profits have risen more rapidly, the stock market has earned higher uh, returns. And that's not because their loyalty has been to corporate interests, but it's been because they've had a better effective economic strategy mm. because it was based on helping the middle class. And in the end, that's what's benefited uh, businesses uh, to a uh, greater degree. So I don't nobody knows what will happen uh, in uh, the election. But in the event that a Biden-Harris uh, team uh, comes to power, uh, my best guess is that you'll see some significant acceleration in uh, economic growth mm -hmm. and that things will benefit uh, the uh, markets as well. You know, people talk about how it's an accomplishment, Scarlett, that somehow unemployment insurance claims are now below one million. Never in the post-war history of the United States had they gotten close to one million before the last uh, six months, even at the worst of the 2008 recession. Yeah. They weren't uh, running at nearly the level that they're running even still now. So it is madness that we are not supporting uh, the economy with extensions of unemployment insurance, with support right. for state and local governments that are being uh, crushed. And, Certainly a different administration will get to a different place on that. Well, that's where I want to go next, because the other big headline of the week was what didn't happen, any kind of stimulus deal. How much does Washington's failure on this slow the economy's trajectory? Millions of people will be unemployed who don't have to. Kids who come out of college will get on lower career trajectories because of the mistakes that we are making. People will die because of the budgets that will be taken away from municipal hospitals. Kids will have their uh, gaining knowledge, have their basic skill in learning to read taken away because we will be inadequately investing in uh, public schools. Our streets will be less safe because we will be inadequately investing in uh, the programs that keep them safe, both the social uh, and emotional uh, programs that help uh, with disadvantaged youth, both the uh, protection, um, uh, the presence of uh, people who ensure our security. All of that will happen because of stimulus not being passed. We are going to not be the country that we can be. You know, someone said the other day that uh, the United States has been feared, the United States has been admired, the United States has elicited all kinds of reactions. But until these last months, the reaction has never been to pity mm. Americans. And that's the reaction we're having now. And what the stimulus bill would do, invest in health care, invest in uh, education, invest in the frontline uh, workers who are keeping us safe, 
invest in protecting the people who are unemployed and whose children are going hungry. That's what this bill is about. And when people stop it from uh, happening, they are a reason why the United States is pitied. And uh, it's a very sad thing that goes beyond the usual partisan disputes that take place in a presidential election year. Larry, I have uh, just one question here, yes or no. Would it take a stock market tumble for Washington to get its act together and catalyze some kind of deal? Yes, no? It might, it might, and it's a terrible thing that uh, people being hungry doesn't move Washington, but the stock market falling does. What moves you says a lot about your values. And it's something we really need to be concerned about, especially with respect to this administration. Thank you, Larry, for joining us today. That's Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm Scarlett Fu, in for David Weston. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.